Be sure to check out Sylvie's Love, now on Amazon Prime Video. Set in Harlem in the 1950s, a young woman meets an aspiring saxophonist in her father's record shop, and their love ignites a sweeping romance that transcends the changing times. Watch Sylvie's Love, directed by Eugene Ash, starring Tessa Thompson and Namdi Asamoah, and produced by Moth Board member Gabrielle Glore on Amazon Prime Video. PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this show, and coming up we bring you a special live hour recorded at the Players Club in New York City. The Players was founded in the 19th century as a social club for actors by Edwin Booth and Friends. It's housed in a Gothic Revival-style mansion on Gramercy Park. Moth storytellers stand on stage there in a lovely room surrounded by ornately framed oil paintings of Players Club members. The theme of this evening was Tangled and Twisted, Stories of the Ties that Bind. And the host is author and storyteller Peter Aguero. Welcome to the Moth, everybody. Thank you so much. Our theme tonight is the ties that bind. Our first storyteller, when I asked her, uh, what was the last rule that you broke? Uh, she said, uh, I jaywalked with my dog, Daffy. Please welcome Maris Bleschner. Come on! I used to be a high school English teacher, and so words are very important to me. You know, words have a tremendous amount of power, good or bad, and you have to be so careful about the words that you choose. In my life, there are certain words that have tremendous significance, and that's really the heart of what I want to tell you about. I met my husband in college, and when we were dating, we found out that each of us had a cousin who had an adopted child. And each of us had already made a life plan that included adoption. So when we decided to get married, we knew just what we were going to do. We were going to have a bunch of kids, and then we would absolutely adopt. Sometimes, though, life does not work out the way you expect. When we first got married, I didn't want to have kids yet. My husband was in school and I was working and I loved my work. Then eventually I wanted to have kids and I couldn't get pregnant. It was really hard, it took a very long time. Finally I got pregnant, I had a wonderful pregnancy, but the baby had birth defects and died at birth. Not a good thing. Hospitals today are far more sensitive than they used to be when a baby dies. In those days, I didn't see the baby. I never held him or said goodbye. We, had, we named him, my husband and I, and we made arrangements to bury him. Of course, that's what you do. But there I was in the hospital, devastated. All around me were flowers and balloons and mothers and their babies. And I went home with no baby, back into my neighborhood where it looked like everybody was a young couple having children. 
It was just awful. I felt so disconnected. Well, now I wanted to have a baby more than ever, and I still couldn't get pregnant. So I went back to teaching. And then one day, there was one of those moments, you know, the ones that change the whole rest of your life forever? I was teaching, and the teacher came in from next door, and she said to me, Maris, I have to leave early, because my brother and sister-in-law just adopted a baby from Seattle, and I want to go see the baby. Well, that was it for me. I went home, and I said to my husband, well, we said we were going to adopt someday anyway. Here's our chance. How about if we find out what that couple did, and maybe we can adopt a baby now? He was fine with that, and I did it. I spoke to the sister-in-law, and I spoke to the adoption attorney in Seattle, and six months later, we got a call to come and pick up our newborn baby daughter. It was an incredibly exciting time. We flew to Seattle on a Sunday. I couldn't hold the baby till Monday after we went to court, but I could see her. So there we were, the attorney took us to the hospital, and we, my husband and I were walking down the corridor to get to the big nursery window. And I knew I had to warn him, because I'm the oldest of four, and he's the younger of two, and really didn't know anything about babies. So I said to him, listen, newborn babies are not always pretty. In fact, sometimes they're really funny looking. But it's okay, they get better. Just be prepared. And sure enough, we got to the window of the nursery and there in front of me were five of the ugliest babies I had ever seen. I didn't care, I just wanted to know which one was mine. The attorney said something to the nurse and I figured she was gonna point out which was our baby. Only instead, from the back of the nursery came another nurse carrying a newborn wrapped in a new pink blanket. That was our baby. And I have to tell you, she was the most beautiful baby I had ever seen in my life. Yeah. Was she really beautiful? Who knows? But she certainly was beautiful to us. The next day, we went to court. We did everything we had to do, and we brought her home. Now, I have to tell you that in the months that we were waiting for that phone call, I had an opportunity to talk to a surgeon about having a procedure that maybe would help me get pregnant. And I said to the surgeon, I don't know what to do. We're supposed to adopt a baby. And the surgeon said to me, Maris, this procedure only works half the time anyway. And if you do get pregnant, it won't be for probably a year or more. So have the procedure and go adopt your baby. Well, would you like me to tell you the sequence of events? <laughs> I had the surgery in September. We picked up our daughter in November. I became pregnant in January, and 10 months and three weeks after our daughter was born, our son was born. So now we had two babies. Now, why am I telling you this? Because of words. Because we never imagined in a million years that we would hear the words that we heard when we entered this new world of having a baby by birth and a baby by adoption. I mean, people said really strange things. It was not nice words. When our son was born, somebody said to me, well, aren't you sorry you didn't wait a little longer? In other words, why did we bother going to Seattle? 
And then somebody, worse than that, somebody else said to me, well, you're going to give that girl back now, aren't you, now that you have your own child? Incredible, as though our daughter were any less my own child than our son was. People were just amazing. We ended up adding a third child to our family by adoption. We had had two babies in a year. I didn't want another baby. So we did what in those years was considered a very brave act. We adopted what was then an older child. I wrote a letter and sent an application to a big international adoption agency, and we got a referral of a three-year-old girl from Korea who needed a family. Now, it's not like today. Today, when you get an international referral, you get a photo album, you get a video, you get a file of medical to bring to your pediatrician. Not then. We got a couple of pages of information, which was fine with us, and one little picture, like a mugshot of this little girl with a very serious face. It was enough for us. I immediately wrote back to that agency, said, yep, we'll take her. Absolutely, she's ours. And then we waited for her to come to America. Well, it was the end of the Vietnam War, and it took a really long time. We ended up going to Kennedy Airport probably six or seven months later. And by coincidence, it was a friend of ours who was the volunteer who was bringing her off the plane. So as they were walking toward us, what struck me was that she wasn't bringing me some new child, some stranger who was just coming into our family. She was bringing us our daughter, who had been our daughter for six months already and was just finally coming home. Now, there we were, an interesting family. Don't you think somebody didn't say something? Those words again? Somebody actually said to me, Maris, it's obvious that you love all three of your children, but didn't you feel just a little bit different when your son was born? After all, he's your blood. Now, I would have liked to have had the words right then and there to answer people like that and to tell them how I felt about my children. But I didn't have the, I, who love words, did not have the words for years to really know how to answer people. And it didn't stop. Here, fast forward 25 years. Our three children are terrific. They all grew up great, and they all got married. Imagine three out of three, which is in itself <laughs> astounding. And our son, who is our birth child, married a woman who had been adopted as a baby. So yeah, so we had two adopted daughters and an adopted daughter-in-law, who in fact has truly become our third daughter. And all of them decided they wanted to start a family. Well, you know what I said, don't you want to adopt? And in essence, all three women answered me the same way. Oh, mom, we want to have a baby. Rightfully so, and they did. In the course of 15 months, each of those three women gave birth to a baby girl. So now we had these three incredible, delicious granddaughters, not genetically related to each other, don't look anything like each other, but they're close cousins. They talk to each other, they laugh with each other, they play with each other, they love each other, and all the rest of that stuff is just details that they don't care about. Well, don't you think somebody didn't say something to me about them? Somebody actually said to me, Maris, 
It's obvious that you love all three of your grandchildren, but didn't you feel just a little bit different when your son's wife had a baby? After all, that one's your blood. Incredible what people say. Anyway, as our kids got bigger, I went back to school and I became a social worker and I started to do work with an adoption agency. I loved doing adoption work because I was bringing other people to the place where I was. And then a bunch of us who did this work together decided that we wanted to open our own adoption agency. And we wanted to do it the best possible way. We opened our own adoption agency, Family Focus in Queens, and it's still going strong all these years later. So there we were sitting around thinking, well, what should we say to people who come in the door? After all, people come in, they don't know what adoption is. We have to be able to explain it to them so that they can decide if it's even something they want to do. So I was going to be the trainer of these new families because I was a teacher. And I already knew in my head what I would say to new people. Listen, adoption isn't just when you go to court and a judge signs papers. And it isn't just when a social worker comes to your house and writes a report and you give all this documentation and paperwork. Adoption is different, and it's way more than that. And that's when I came on a word, the best word, and actually the word that had probably been inside of me all of those years. And all of a sudden, it popped right out of my mouth. I said, I know what adoption is. It's just a claim you make. You claim your child, and it's forever, and that's it. Everybody in the room picked up on the power of that word right away, and in fact, we've been using it in our training in all these years since. And I'll tell you that all adoptive parents understand it, because what it is saying is that we claim our children exactly the way birth parents claim their birth children. And I'll tell you who else understands it, step-parents. Many step-parents can never go to court to legally claim their stepchildren, but in their hearts, they absolutely claim them, and that's forever, too. And adoptive parents don't only have to claim babies. A woman once came to our agency who wanted to adopt really an older child, not like my three-year-old. And she looked in a picture book of children who needed to be adopted, and she saw a teenage boy who really needed a family. He had some learning disabilities, he had some medical issues, but mostly he had had many, many disappointments in his life. She liked him, she read his material, she asked if she could meet him. We introduced them, they got along really well. She visited with him a very long time until he felt comfortable enough to move into her house. They, she he moved in, and they went to court, and she adopted him. Two years later, I happened to bump into her at a conference. After we did this whole big hello, this mutual hello, I said to her, so how's Larry? Oh, she said, and she reached into her giant pocketbook and pulled out one of those little plastic photo albums, the kind that new mothers and new grandmothers used to have before everybody put their pictures in a smartphone. And she said, look, Larry graduated from high school. Here's his picture. And here he went to the prom. Look at his tuxedo. And here he is in his uniform working in McDonald's. And I realized this was a new mother 
who had claimed her baby. Didn't matter that he was 18 years old. He was her baby. And she was one happy woman. So did I ever claim my baby that died? Or did I remain forever disconnected? Of course I claimed him, absolutely. I realized long, long ago that he is every bit as much my child as all of the others. And as far as that ridiculous question, can you love a child you didn't create as much as you love your blood child? I have an answer for that too now, and it's really simple. There's no such thing as as much as, because love is not measurable. Our children, all of our children, are claimed by us, and that's it. What's ours is ours, and that's my last word. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, Maris Bleschner. Maris Bleschner is a licensed clinical social worker and educator. She spent the last 38 years working for the improvement of adoption and the child welfare system. In addition to training and doing consulting, she also mentors for Children's Corps and teaches at the Silberman School of Social Work at Hunter College. If you want to make contact with The Moth on Facebook or Twitter, you can find us at The Moth. Coming up, more stories from this live event at the Players Club in New York City. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison. You're listening to a special edition of the Moth Radio Hour with stories recorded live at an event held in New York City with the theme, The Ties That Bind. Here's your host, Peter Aguero. Uh, okay, uh, we're going to keep moving on now. Our next storyteller, when I asked him what was the last rule that he broke, this is a quote. He said, I used the shit out of my laptop in between landing and before we got to the gate. <laughs> so please welcome Joshua Wolf Shank. My parents split up when I was seven years old, and they got joint custody. My mom stayed in the house on Hilltop Lane, and my dad moved to a crappy apartment about five minutes away, and then he moved to a little house and another house. He was always five minutes away. If you put a compass needle at my mom's house and swung it around, it was always the same distance. And um, I would go back and forth between them, and I never really felt like I was home either place. It was like I lived in that space in between. It was like being a pinball, except for my parents were super hostile to each other. They were very lonely and unhappy people at that time. So it was like bouncing back and forth between these two angry bumpers making this very loud screeching sound. 
I came up, uh, I, left, I left home and went to college, and I had this split in me. No matter where I lived, there was always one specific place I thought I should be that wasn't my home. I lived in Manhattan, and I looked with these wide eyes over the river at Brooklyn, and then I moved to Brooklyn, and I looked back at Manhattan with the exact same expression. And I had enough therapy to know what was going on. Brooklyn was like my mom, warm, warm and inviting, and Manhattan was like my dad, elusive and bipolar. Uh, but I, I couldn't shake it. I went for a run one day, and I got all emotional, and I came back, and I called my mom. Uh, we had gotten to be very good friends uh, as I grew up. And I said, Mom, I, I had this breakthrough on my run. I realized why I can't settle down and get a home of my own. There's a part of me that still feels like the little boy living on Hilltop Lane. And I think that that little boy in me thinks that if he gets a home of his own, that means dad is really not coming back. My dad was definitely not coming back. Uh, after I went to college, he came into some money and he started traveling all around the world. He was a photographer, a great photographer, and he would pack up his equipment and go. And I often liter literally did not know where in the world he was. And I would beg him to tell me his itinerary so I could track him in my mind. But even that stopped mattering because he studied for his pilot's license and bought a little plane and began to fly himself. And he really did try to show up. He came to my brother John's wedding, and he was there for the rehearsal dinner, and he was there for the wedding. But on Sunday morning when I woke up, I said, where's dad? And someone said, he flew out at dawn. He was an awkward guy around a lot of us, but the sort of dark heart of his energy in those years was this fury at my mom. Decades after they divorced, he couldn't stand to be in the same room with her. And so he just got further and further away and higher and higher up in the sky until one day, suddenly, he came down. In April 2008, my dad was flying from Colorado, where he, had, he was living, to Virginia. And he was going to stop in Louisville for the night, just for one night. That was his way. And as he approached the airport in suburban Louisville, Bowman Field, something happened with the plane. And it, and it came down quickly through the trees and into this suburban neighborhood and, 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 and smashed on the ground and went careening through a yard across a road and smacked into a retaining wall and burst into flames. And this little girl saw it from her front window and called 911 and they said, what's the emergency? And she said, there's a plane on fire in my front yard. And it took at least five minutes for the fire crew to get there. My dad was trapped in the cockpit burning. And it took a few more minutes for them to get the fire out and, 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 and extract him from this tangled and twisted plane. When I saw him late that night in the burn unit, at University of Louisville Hospital, his head had swollen to the size of a basketball and it was all wrapped in gauze. Uh, he had second and third degree burns over 70% of his body. 
His back was broken, and if he survived, he would surely be paralyzed. I hate euphemisms, but the doctors used what was actually a very good euphemism. They said we should prepare for the worst. And the worst thing for me is that if my dad died in that moment, he would die with us as strangers. I felt like every, everywhere I went, I had this whiteboard in my mind. Uh, these three phrases that describe my relationship with my dad. I felt that we, we couldn't connect, we never connected, and I felt that I wasn't useful to him, and I didn't know if he was proud of me. And he was in a coma, and I was carrying this, I was walking around in this daze, and now the split in me was the split between wherever I had to be for, for, for work and the hospital. And I, I, I would come see him for about a week at a time and, and, and sit by his side uh, for long hours with him uh, in a coma and the whirring and clicking of, of all these machines keeping him alive. And then he was well enough uh, still in terrible shape, but well enough for them to bring him out of this coma. And one day, I was sitting with him. He was unable to speak, but he was awake. And this was a moment when I thought, maybe this is going to be like one of those movies where the worst possible thing has this underpinning of light kind of coming up from underneath. Because my mom had come up to be with me, and she was in the waiting room. She would never have dared to actually come and, and, and into, the, into the hospital room. And I said, Dad, your mom is out there. Would you like to see her? And he nodded his head, yes. And I felt he was so vulnerable that anyone who had any kind of tenderness for him, he needed, he needed to have them in his life. And about a, a month later, he was high on morphine. And my mom was on the phone with one of us. And he, he asked for the phone. And he said, Joanne? I know things got a little helter-skelter between us, but if things don't work out with Sydney, that's her husband of 24 years at this point. If things don't work out with Sydney, I still want to make it work. And that's when this really strange thing happened. And I want to remind you of the geography, which is that my dad was living in Colorado, and he was flying to Virginia, and he crashed in Louisville. That's 90 miles from Cincinnati. So after a couple of months in, in, in critical care at the uh, University of Louisville, it made sense to transfer him to Cincinnati because he had so many family and friends there and he could, he could survive the move. So we, we, we made that move for him. And he was in critical care at University of Cincinnati for, for many more months. And then it made sense to move him to a rehab hospital. And the rehab hospital in Cincinnati is five minutes from my mom's house. So in the summer of 2008, my week came up and I, and I, where I could, I could leave work and go be with my dad. And I, I, I flew to Cincinnati and I went to my mom's house on Hilltop Lane and I, I dropped my bags and I, I went to see my dad. And that week, it was like one by one, I took an eraser the, the circumstances and my relationship with my dad took an eraser to those phrases on that whiteboard. I never felt like I could connect with him. It used to be that it was like a miracle to get my dad on the line for two minutes at a time. But now we were talking all day and we talked about real things. He told me about studying with Ansel Adams and we talked about Judaism and he was the 
wise old man with stories, but I was right there with him, and I was asking him questions, and I was arguing with him when I disagreed. And I never felt useful to my dad, but I was so obviously useful. I, I was... I was critical. I was, I was interfacing with the, with the, the nurses and the doctors uh, about his care, um, which was constant. And I, I, when he, he, he was just able to have something down his throat for the first time, I went and got him ice chips every hour from the machine. Uh, he was, then he was hot, and I went and got a, a fan and, and put it together for him. And I shaved him. And when I was shaving him, I said, Dad, you remember when, when I was little, you used to ask me to cut your ear hairs. Uh, he had this funny little scissors, that he, and, he, and he would have me cut his ear hairs, and I did that again for him in the bathroom from his hospital room. And I never knew if my dad was proud of me, but it just happened that that week, after months of negotiation with the psychiatrist at Harvard I wanted to write about for The Atlantic, we finally agreed on terms for me to get access to this very unusual study, and I got the assignment to write a cover story for The Atlantic, and I took the call in the room next to my dad's, and I came back and I told him, and he wanted to know how much I was going to get paid. <laughs> and I, I told him the number, and he, he was a little impressed. Um, and later that day, my brother John was on the phone, on speakerphone, and he said, what do you think of our boy Josh? My dad said, he's not a boy, he's all man. <laughs> and, you know, we'd have these long days together, and then at the end of the day, he was tired, he was ready to sleep, and it was just so natural to say goodbye, and I'll see you tomorrow, and I would go home to my mom's house and drive up the hill to Hilltop Lane, and my mom had dinner waiting for me, and we would talk about the day, and... Uh, she wanted to know how my dad was, and she wanted to know how it felt for me. And I would go sleep in my childhood bed, and 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 then and wake up, and go do it again. And for once in my life, I felt like maybe I was still a pinball, but now I was like nestled in this flipper. Everything was okay, and I was my both my parents were holding me, and I was holding them, and I I felt like I could shoot out into the world. The last day was nothing like it had been the, the whole week. It was, I, I had had these long, languorous uh, days with my dad and, and plenty of, of time, and now we were rushed because I, I had a plane to catch. And somehow, even though he was really, really profoundly vulnerable in his body, I, most of the week, I wasn't thinking about his body. I was, he was so present in his mind. At one point in the week, somebody came in the room for a little bit to visit, and it's clear, my, the guy my dad didn't like, and when he left, my dad said, somebody crack a window in here. <laughs> um, but this last day, the nurses were, 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 were cleaning him and changing his bedding, and they had him tipped over on his side, and his flesh was hanging off of him, and it was so pink and raw. It was like a cut of meat you would see at the butcher's. And I was standing at the door. I had to go, and I was so full of longing for my dad. And I had been so good all week, 
But I just broke down, and I became a little boy again, and I started to cry. And my dad arched his head over. He was facing the window. He kinda, he, with some effort, he turned his head around to face me, and he said, Josh, why are you crying? And I said, I don't want to go. And he said, you can come back. And I, th I think I know what he meant. I think he meant, you know, I could book another flight and I could come back to see him. But in the years since, hard years, while he was still alive, and especially since he, since he died three years later, that phrase has come to mean so much more to me. It's come to mean you can go back to the places you're hurt and get a little better. And you can come back to the people in your memory and spend a little bit more time with them. And as I think about that week with my dad, I can't help it. I would give anything to go back. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that's Joshua Wolfshank. Joshua Wolf Shank is the author most recently of Powers of Two, How Relationships Drive Creativity. He's the executive director and writer-in-residence of the Beverly Rogers Carol C. Harter Black Mountain Institute at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. You can share these stories or any others from The Moth Archive through our website, themoth.org. You can send a URL right to your friends or family. And you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth and find out about upcoming shows all over the country. In a moment, our final story from this live event at The Players in New York City. Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Jay Allison, producer of this show. You're listening to a live Moth event held at the Venerable Players Club in New York City with the theme, Tangled and Twisted. Here's your host, Peter Aguero. All right, now we're back. We're ready to go. All right, now, remember, like we said before, we uh, asked all of our storytellers a question, said, you know, a lot of times uh, we're tied to the rules of life, but what was the last time that you broke a rule? And our, uh, our next storyteller uh, said, let me just make sure I get this correct. That's right. She said she's been on 50 planes this year and has never once put her phone in airplane mode. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Nadia Boltz-Weber. Be 
basically the least comfortable situation I can imagine myself in was when I was in a few years ago where I was in a conference room with 500 Lutherans. <laughs> it's super uncomfortable for me, even if technically I am a Lutheran pastor. So I spent most of that meeting in the lobby because I found the other half a dozen misanthropic clergy people to hang out with in the lobby and to talk smack about other people. And then one of them said, hey, we should go around the circle and say, what adjective, if someone used it to describe you, would be like the worst? <laughs> and someone said, uh, stupid. I thought, oh, yeah, that's bad. And then someone else said, boring. I was like, yeah. But when it came to me, I knew absolutely what it was going to be, which is needy. <laughs> I would so much rather be described as stupid or boring than needy. It's super important that everyone know that I'm like strong as hell and can handle everything myself. As a matter of fact, my mom said that the first time as a kid that I said more than one word at a time, I like skipped two word combinations altogether and went straight to do it self. <laughs> I will do it myself. <clears throat> Usually that works out for me pretty good, but uh, not when about a year after that I had an opportunity to go to the Holy Land and as a Lutheran pastor, I really wanted to go to the Holy Land. And uh, even if it was with 20 super nice Lutherans from Wisconsin. <laughs> and so I had a strategy for dealing with being in close quarters with two per super, 20 super nice Lutherans from Wisconsin, which was that I decided that I would just, just really keep my distance and just kind of keep to myself and that I wasn't going to get close to anyone or really engage with them very much mostly out of fear that they want, might like want something from me, like to laugh at corny puns or look at lots of pictures of their grandchildren. And so I just chose to keep to myself. Um, and that plan worked pretty well until about five days into the trip when we had this day trip that we were taking from um, Bethlehem to Jericho. And because I hadn't really made much of a connection with anyone, Nobody knew that I had this horrible fear of driving in mountain roads, an actual sort of anxiety disorder, which is not completely convenient because I'm from Colorado. But <laughs> <clears throat> nobody knew this. And I, uh, I knew that Jericho was like the lowest habitable place on earth. And I knew that Bethlehem was just like sea level. And I didn't know that the road that we would have to take to get to Jericho was so steep it wouldn't actually be legal in the States and that we would be traveling on this road in a tour bus. And it was so steep and it had so many hairpin turns and so few guardrails that I spent the entire time praying and cursing and praying and cursing. And I kept it to myself, having my little private panic attack we finally got to the end of the road. We're in Jericho, and I had done it. But I knew I had no reserves left, and I was going to spend the entire time in Jericho freaked out about the fact that we would have to be taking the same road back up, but that time it would be in the dark. 
And so there's this thing, cool thing you can do in Jericho, which is there's this little cliff. And that's not a little cliff, it's kind of a big one, but you take this ski lift gondola thing up this cliff to go to this beautiful monastery that's just like carved out of this cliff. And I'm not afraid of heights at all, unless I'm in a car and on a road. Uh, but <laughs> so I was fine with that. And so my whole tour group's like in line to wait for these ski lift gondola things. And I systematically go to each person in my group most of whom this would be the first time I've talked to them in five days, trying to be seen as super strong and not needy is hard when you go to each person and ask if they have any Valium. <laughs> <clears throat> so I went to each one, and they all gave me the same Midwestern, tilted-headed, oh, I'm so sorry, I can't help you, crestfallen thing. It was totally legit. And... Um, <laughs> Until I got to the last person and I said, hey, Sharon. And I was like, I couldn't believe I got her name right. I was like, Sharon, do you have any Valium? And she said, no. And I thought, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be able to do this. I'll, I think I can do it. And so I get into a gondola. And as it sort of lifts up into the, the dry air, I can see Jericho. It's so beautiful there. And I thought about the Bible story that Jericho is in, and there's a situation where the Hebrew people fought this incredible battle there, and the walls came tumbling down, and the only reason they were able to win the battle was that the two spies that were sent had help from this character named Rahab, but she was sort of the least likely person to give them help. She was a prostitute, and I kept wondering as we went, and I could see Jericho, if it was humiliating for them receiving help from a prostitute, and would they have even spoken to her if they met her on the street otherwise. So we make it to the top, and my whole tour group goes and does this sort of pious group activity. I'm not sure, like praying or something, I don't know. But I kept to myself, <laughs> and I kind of, I would, I would kind of chat with the other people I'd meet along the way. I mean, I was friendly enough to people on this trip who I'd, I knew I'd only see for like five minutes. I, I tend to have like a really similar policy on airplanes where I disappear into magazines and headphones until the final descent, at which time I decide to be friendly and ask if they are coming home or leaving home. And that way, if they're you know stupid, boring, or needy, it's like a 10-minute commitment tops. <laughs> it's not the whole flight. And so, um, so I chatted with a couple of people, but mostly when we were up at the monastery, I was formulating a plan for how I was gonna do this myself to get back up without any borrowed Valium. And so the, the plan I had was I thought, I'll just not look out the window, and as painful as it is, I'll engage in small talk with someone and maybe just distract myself so much that I won't freak out. So I get into a gondola to come back down, <clears throat> and it's filled not with people from my tour group, but with these five Kenyans all in these bright turquoise matching church shirts. And we're in the gondola, and as soon as it starts moving, this big, beautiful black woman next to me grabs my knee and starts rocking back and forth. And I look at her friends like, what the hell's going on? And they said, well, she's afraid of heights. And so I put my hand on her hand that was on my knee, and with the other hand, I rub her back, and I go, you're okay. I'm right here. You're okay. I'm right here. And I'm like, I'm praying and like her friends are now singing hymns and, and I say, 
Like, if God can bring down the walls of Jericho, God's going to get this gondola down the hill. I promise you, you're okay. And, and I wondered in that moment, like, did she ever think that her need would be met by this heavily tattooed, tall, white lady from America? And is I, am I someone she would have voluntarily spoken to on the street or not? I don't know. But in that moment, um, I was helping her in her need. And so we get down finally to the end and my whole tour group's waiting for me and they see this unexplainable sight of me and five Kenyans pour out of a gondola all hugging each other and one falls to her knees and says, praise Jesus. (laughs) And now these are like my best friends but I haven't talked to any of the 20 super nice Lutherans from Wisconsin in five days. So we get into the bus again, and I think I can do this. I'm gonna distract myself. And I, I totally succeeded for like 10 minutes. I was engaging in small talk, feeling super proud, and like not, definitely not looking out the window, until all of a sudden the bus stopped very violently, and we all jerk forward, and there's this really loud sound underneath the bus. And I like go, what the hell? And I swing around, I look out, and the left side, we had failed to make a hairpin turn. And now the left side of the bus is facing a cliff, and the right side of the bus is blocking traffic in both directions on the hairpin turn on this one-lane road with two-way traffic that our tour bus is on. And as soon as the driver tried to re-engage the clutch and go forward, we lurched back to about 10 feet. And he swung open the door and said, leave your stuff and get out. And my vision just like blurs all around the edges. And I start not being able to breathe. And I run out of the bus. And all I could see was there's this like patch of concrete along the side of the road and I just made a beeline for it and I crawled up onto this patch of concrete and I start rocking back and forth and my knees are like soaked in my tears and I'm shaking and I can't like get oxygen in my lungs that just keeps getting rejected over and over and over it won't go in and um, I have a full blown panic attack in front of 20 super nice Lutherans from Wisconsin, which is basically the worst thing that could ever happen to me. (laughs) And I don't even know when she came up to me, but all of a sudden I realized that Sharon's hands were on my shoulders and she said, you're okay. I'm right here, you're okay. And she was like keeping the lid on for me so something didn't escape that I needed, like, my sanity or the ability for my body and mind to be in the same place at the same time. And she was so strong and calm and amazing and everything I want people to think I am and everything I wasn't in that moment. And she was exactly what I needed. And like an asshole an hour earlier, I had a hard time knowing her name. And at this point, the bus was righted and was about was kind of in a position where it could keep going. And everyone else was getting back on the bus, and I saw that, and I kept rocking back and forth going, I'm not getting on the bus, I'm not getting on that bus. And Sharon said to our tour guide, under no circumstances, Nadia allowed to get on the bus, for which I loved her. And so we stopped this Audi, the first car we saw, 
And these two Palestinian men rolled down the window and they flicked out their cigarettes and they said, can we help you? And they agreed to take the shaking, crazy, needy, heavily tattooed, tall, white American woman back up the road to Bethlehem to safety. And the next morning, I was the first person at breakfast and there was like this light streaming in the window and I felt sort of cleansed, you know, like you do after a cry or a hard rain. And I realized that whatever I was trying to protect on that road was taken from me. And I saw Sharon and her husband come in for breakfast and I motioned for them to join me. And I realized that they had seen me in my most unguarded, raw, needy state in which I couldn't do it myself. And they hadn't made a big deal about it. They just wanted to make sure I was okay. But I knew I had experienced like a spiritual exfoliation by way of humiliation. And my heart was open finally. It took five days and my heart was finally open to these people. I mean, maybe not like enough to laugh at corny puns, but <laughs> when they sat down, I looked at them and I said, so do you guys have any pictures of your grandchildren? That's Nadia Boltz Weber. The Reverend Nadia Boltz Weber is the founding pastor of House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, Colorado. She's the author of Accidental Saints, Finding God and All the Wrong People, and the New York Times bestselling theological memoir, Pastrix, The Cranky, Beautiful Faith of a Sinner and Saint. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the moth. Your host this hour was Peter Aguero. Peter was born and raised in southern New Jersey. He performs, hosts, and produces storytelling, burlesque, and variety shows all over New York City. His most recent show is called Daddy Issues. The stories in this hour were directed by Catherine Burns and Jennifer Hickson. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Whitney Jones and Michelle Jalowski. Moss stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Dan Romer and Ben Zeitlin. Lulla Tone and John Zorn. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by PRX. For more about our podcast, for information on pitching your own story and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org. Moth Story Slams are back. Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly open mic story slam competition. February's theme 
is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.